Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever the mission, home or away, Enterprise helps over 120,000 people every day. With vans of all shapes and sizes, if you have a plan, Enterprise has a van. No matter if you need to rent for an hour, a day, a week or longer, Enterprise offers great rates for you or your business. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Welcome to Upfront with Gary Lineker and me, Sam Matterface. This is the show that takes you into the world of the number nine as we find out what it takes to be a top-flight striker. We'll discuss their career-defining goals, their ideal strike partner, and whether it's all just about being in the right place at the right time. The Germans and they're in trouble. Alcantara couldn't do it. Lineker probably could. And he had to be equalised. It's Gary Lineker. You're listening to Upfront with Gary Lineker. England's record goal scorer at World Cup finals, including the first hat-trick I can remember. 281 goals in 567 appearances across five clubs in three countries. FA Cup winner, three-time top scorer in the first division. Cup winner's cup winner, Ballon d'Or runner-up. World Cup Golden Boot winner and latterly purveyor of fine crisp shirts and a TV front man. It can only be Gary Lineker. Hello, how are you? I'm I'm all right, Sam. Fine, thank you very much. Yes. Can I start by talking to you about shirt numbers? Because a lot of the strikers that I've been talking to have been number nines. Now, yep. you wore 10 for England, didn't you? 10 at Spurs, 8 at Barcelona. Yep. I think yep. 8 at Leicester majority of the time. But I think the first goal that you scored against Watford came wearing the number nine. Were you ever sort of precious about jersey numbers? Um, my first goal was actually at Notts County. I think I was number seven back then because my first, I think my, about my first 30-odd games for Leicester were played on the right wing. Um, I think they saw something in me but stuck me in a position that I'd never played in my life before. And also that kind of stuffed up my um, goal-scoring ratio for a while. Same thing happened at Barcelona, latterly. I was quite superstitious as a player. And when it came to numbers, once I established myself as a kind of proven goal-scorer, um, I wore number eight. I, ne- I didn't like number nine. Um, I did wear it occasionally, but I didn't mind eight or ten. I don't know why. I don't know logic behind it. I probably had a couple of bad games in a number nine shirt at some point and didn't want to wear it again. Um, so I wore seven for a bit. And then generally right throughout my Leicester and Everton career, I wore eight. I also wore eight at, at Barcelona. And the reason I changed to 10 at Barcelona was because I played one season there. Obviously, I played with Mark Hughes. And in those days, you're only allowed two foreign players. And in the second season, they brought back Bernd Schuster, who'd been kind of left to rot a little bit. Um, and Mark Hughes, was he went off to Bayern Munich on loan. And they brought back Bernd Schuster. And he always liked playing number eight. 
So he asked me if I'd change. And I said, well, yeah, fine, but I don't want nine. I ended up with number 10, which is um, the shirt that I'd always kind of worn uh, with England. And then it then it stuck with me for the number 10 at Spurs. And um, so that's the history of my numbers. <laughs> What's, what, what sort of forward would you have described yourself as? Um, I, I kind of, you, I suppose you'd archetypal poacher, a box player in many ways. Um, I, was, I was quick. I wasn't particularly skillful. I, I couldn't probably dribble past you now. Actually, I couldn't, I <laughs> couldn't dribble could. past anyone now. I'm too bloody old. But I think I had a, a degree of intelligence to, to the game. I knew how to score goals. I knew how to attack space. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was a, the old poacher. I think that's probably the, the best way to describe it. I heard you say recently um, that you like to play on the shoulder. So people like Tony Adams, you didn't really mind about because they played a high line. So you get in behind. Was it always like that for you or did it change over time? Well, it had to change over time because um, you, you play against different teams that play in different styles, particularly when I went to Barcelona. Prior to that, I was very much a, uh, like to play um, and, and spin behind defenders and, and love to play against teams that played the offside trap. In fact, I used to, in the first 10 minutes of a game against teams like Arsenal, be deliberately offside two or three occasions. But yeah, I much preferred playing um, against a high line because I was so quick. And if I could spin behind people, um, then it would give me one-on-ones with a goalkeeper, which I was my one of my particular strengths. But then I went to Barcelona. It's very different. And he used to play a lot. In those days, a lot of man-to-man marking. And it was the same in international football as well. A lot of man-to-man marking. And suddenly teams were playing like really deep defenders, like a sweeper. And then I'd spin and I'd think, right, I'm through on goal. And then, oh no, what's he doing there? So I had to not change my game because I'd already worked out how to attack space and score goals, particularly from wide positions. Um, but I had to kind of accelerate that and do more of that than, than perhaps just um, spinning off people. But there were still ways of spinning behind defenders, but you had to do it often away from the goal rather than direct. You've had a great TV career and everybody knows you for that. You, 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 everyone recognises you and, and sees you as the host of, of, of football in this country. But do you ever feel like your stellar football career is sort of secondary in most people's thoughts, and especially the new generation? Well, to the new generation, I'm just the crisp bloke. Um, <laughs> and, um, and obviously a lot of people watch um, the football that I present and stuff. I, it doesn't bother me at all. And then things happen occasionally, like um, someone like Wayne Rooney surpasses your goal-scoring achievements with England or um, Harry Kane wins a golden boot. People say, oh, does that not bother you? You're not, you not know, your record or someone's gone past you. I said, no, it actually reminds people that I used to play the damn game <laughs> and I was all right at it. But I know what you mean. But I just consider myself incredibly fortunate to have, have found two careers that I've um, managed to do OK in. Can I warm you up with a couple of quick fire questions to get a sense of like who yep. Gary Lineker the forward is? What was your mm-hmm. favourite goal? Uh, probably the first against... Um, Poland in the Mexico 86 World Cup. Nice little header. Quickly seized upon by Beardsley. Lineker checking back when he might have gone straight on. Trevor Stephen is unmarked. Gary Stephen's coming up on the right. Four in the area. Lineker! The Everton combination gives England a priceless goal in the ninth minute. And what a relief of tension and a well-made goal too. Lineker got in front of his man. It was absolutely typical um, attacker near post, 
run and how you score goals. And it was also my favourite goal, not because it was spectacular in any way, shape or form, but it changed my life. I'd struggled with England a few games before that. I thought I'd lose my place. Bobby Robson kept me in. I scored that goal, went on to score a hat-trick, went on to get a golden boot, went to Barcelona off the back of it. So it changed my life, that goal. Would you say that that is your most important goal as well? Or is that another one? Absolutely. Absolutely. It has to be that one. I mean, obviously, I've scored other massively important goals that... I mean, the one against Germany in the semi-final at the time felt like the most important moment of my life and the most important goal. But subsequently, we went on to lose the penalty shootout. So perhaps it wasn't. Scoring, obviously, a hat-trick in the Classico, those goals mean a massive amount to me. But they still weren't as as vital in terms of my overall career trajectory. And, and life in many ways, the, 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 the goals against um, Poland were because it changed everything for me. Who was your favourite strike partner? Um, easy, Peter Beardsley. And England still look dangerous with Beardsley. And there's Lineker again. He's got his fourth. Wow, this is extraordinary. The thing when I played with Beardsley was that A, he was unbelievably unselfish and generous and was um, also creative as a footballer. And the other thing was he did most of his work just outside the box and he kind of left the box empty. And I often hear commentators, pundits, call him what you like, saying they're not getting enough players in the box. I used to think the exact opposite. I didn't want many players in the box because the more players in the box, the less space there is in the box and the less space there is to attack for me to score goals. Slightly selfish, I know, but Peter Beersley kind of stepped out of the box but did a lot of creation. So I think my goal-scoring record with England when I played with Peter was very much close to a goal a game and um, there's a reason for that. Who was your childhood hero? Um, two, Frank Worthington and Peter Shilton. I know that's a bit odd having a goalkeeper, but I used to love playing in goal in the garden when I was a kid with my brother. But um, yeah, so it was those two. Frank Worthington, when he was at Leicester, of course, who was a totally different kind of footballer to me or a different kind of striker to me. Uh, wonderfully gifted, technical, um, flamboyant footballer. And um, he was very much kind of my number one hero. And I actually overlapped him slightly at Leicester when I was an apprentice for about four months so got to know him slightly used to call him Elvis did you clean his boots I didn't clean the boots but I did clean his kit and my job at Leicester when I was an apprentice because we're all designated jobs my job was to um, clear the home dressing room so I had to mop the floors sweep the floors um, clean the bloody toilets lovely um, but the worst part of it actually worse than the toilets was they used to have these like baskets for the kit and in those days not like today where they get brand new perfectly washed kit every day in those days the kit was permanent you got one set so they trained all week so Monday I'd pick it up and hang it on these baskets and put it into a drying room you can imagine what it was like by Friday when you're picking up people's pants and socks they practically walked to the drying room on their own and they were stinking. It was just the worst job. What was your worst miss? My worst miss came the first time I was ever on match of the day. I was playing for Leicester. It was at Aston Villa, which ended up being my bogey ground. I never won a game there and I never scored a goal there. And I played in the youth team, the reserves, the first team for Leicester, Everton, Tottenham, all sorts of teams. And never, never. the only time I won there was a the semi-final of the FA Cup with Everton um, when we beat, I think it was Sheffield Wednesday, and I didn't play because I had a tweak in my hamstring and I sat on the bench and that's the only time my team went full apart. Um, so I was playing, it was, I, I must have been, I don't know, 1920, it was quite early days and the ball got knocked back. I was about five yards out and ballooned it over the bar and it was 
my first time I was ever on match of the day. And in those days, it wasn't like every game was on match of the day. You were on like once or twice a season because they'd only show one game uh, or eat two at most. Um, so that was, yeah. So I've never forgotten that. Um, which defender was your toughest opponent? Oh, that's a good question. I've, I, I'll give you a couple. I'll give you three. Des Walker. You'll never beat Des Walker. Yeah. Which you sing all the time. Um, Is that because he was so fast? He was so fast. He didn't kick you, Des. He wasn't one of those. He wasn't aggressive. He was a great guy. He used to talk all the time as well. And whenever we played Forrest, Cluffy used to put him man-to-man uh, -man on me. And he'd done that for ages. And when he did that, I used to go and go out to the wing and stand next to Stuart Pearce, which is, is not the brightest thing to do, actually. Um, but what it did do, it was took it kind of took their best two defenders away from the middle. And we used to have a bit of joy from it. Now, in the ensuing years, that kind of carried on. And we generally did all right. And then we played them in the FA Cup final in 1991. About three weeks, four weeks before the Cup final, we played Forest in the league at White Hart Lane. And there was nothing much at stake in the game. Both teams were mid-table. And I walked out onto the pitch and we started playing. And Steve Chettle was marking me. Now, you know, no, no disrespect to Steve Chettle, but, and he was a good all-round player, but he wasn't Des Walker. And I thought, hmm, this is odd. Cluffy's trying something here. He's trying this out for the FA Cup final coming up. And I swear, it's the only game in my whole career where I never tried a leg. I let Chettle get in front of me all day, won the ball off me, and I was generally deliberately useless. And a few weeks later, cup final, we're in the tunnel at Wembley, and Des Walker shouts over, he goes, Oi. I said, what? He went, it worked. And I thought, I hope he's thinking what I'm thinking. Um, and we get out on the pitch, and Steve Chettle marks me in the first half. So I've kind of run him ragged. I spun around behind him got brought down by Crossley the referee points to the spot gives it I missed the pen oh I should say Crossley brilliantly saved it to be perfectly honest and then I had a perfectly good goal disallowed um, if VAR was around then it would easily wouldn't have even needed lines or dots um, to correct the decision but we went in at half time 1-0 down and I've, I've had one of the best 45 minutes I've had without scoring I swear this is true we come out for the second half and as we're walking down that old tunnel at Wembley, which was quite long, I got a tap on my shoulder and it was Des Walker and he went, I'm back. <laughs> um, and and he, he man marked me in the second half and I took him out, you know, moved him around and and, um, and, and we managed, and Paul Stewart managed to equalise in the second half and then obviously we won in extra time through a Des Walker own goal, which is the saddest aspect of that game because I, I love Des and I would have liked to have won it another way, preferably with me scoring the winner. But Des was a magnificent defender and, and hard to brush off because he was so pacey. Next one I'll give you um, Pietro Viekovod. Um, I'll say him because he had Des Walker's speed and he was nasty and he could hurt you. And he did hurt me on a number of occasions. And the other one, I'll go Paul McGrath. Played against, obviously, uh, mainly for Aston Villa, but I think Manchester United as well. He was, he was such a good defender and he could play and he was tough and he was big and he was strong and he was quick. He could do everything. Season in club football for the first time. 
Some strikers are goal machines. Some set themselves targets. I, I worked with Stan Collymore for a long time and he would say, 20 goals a season is the mark of excellence. And that is what he would strive for every season. Did you set yourself targets? No, if I got 20, I'd be disappointed. That's, on, that's just me being honest. Um, I just wanted to score more than anyone else. Um, it sounds a bit boastful, but I had that. It was more of drive and ambition than anything else. Not just anyone else in my team. That goes without saying, because was, that was my job. But score anyone else in, in the league. And I, I managed to do that on quite a number of occasions. Firstly, in the old championship, or well, the old Division One now the championship, um, for Leicester when we got... Um, promoted the following season, I um, I won the Golden Boot and tied it with Kerry Dixon, I think, with 24 goals. Then I moved to Everton and won it with 30. Then I won the, went to Barcelona and two consecutive seasons I was second, which I was gutted about. To Hugo Sanchez, um, but he was a magnificent goal scorer and, and one of the most acrobatic, athletic, um, brilliant finishers I'd um, ever seen. And they were also a much stronger team than us at the time because we were side in transition, really. And then I came back in with Spurs and won it my first season. And then I had my one real bad season, um, which was um, 89, no, it was 1991, which, although we ended up winning the Cup that season, um, which was obviously one of the highlights. Um, I only scored 15 that season, I think. League, I always judge it by league goals. Because that's you know that's the yardstick you're playing against the same people week in uh, week out and everybody else's. So that season it was after the '90 World Cup, and I, I actually did genuinely come back shattered. We didn't have any break. We went into pre-season, which I just felt so jaded. I didn't really bother with, and I regretted that latterly. And it came, I think it was about December, January when. I just kind of was dead on my feet. And it's the first, time, the only time in my whole career where I've, I felt I had no energy. And Terry said, "Right, I'm going to give you a couple of weeks off or a week off, and then come back. We'll do a proper pre-season, get you going." And that helped. And I was kind of better towards the end of the season. And then in my last season in English football, I um, had the battle with Ian Wright. I was one goal clear with a game to go. I scored my 28th goal of the league goal of the season in. In, with about eight minutes to go against Manchester United, which I thought would seal it. But right, he scored a hat-trick in, in, in the last 20 minutes uh, against Southampton. I knew it was nil-nil at half-time. I thought I was too clear and I was cruising. I don't mind admitting I was absolutely devastated. Uh, <laughs> and I've, we've had this conversation with Wrighty so many times, but um, I'm chuffed for him now because um, he deserved it. He was just such a great, great goal scorer, was right. Did you care about missing? Or did you just sort I, of... No, I cared, I cared massively about missing, but it never let it affect me because I know as a striker that you are going to miss chances. But obviously, when, whenever you do, it's, it's a massive disappointment. But, you know, it didn't mean to say that it would ever affect my confidence because I knew I could finish. And my ratio of, you know, of, I don't know what you call it nowadays, you know, goals per shots or ratio yeah. or whatever it was, was very high, mainly because all my shots from about six yards out. <laughs> um, and I never try and shoot from outside the box. Um, so, you know, there's method in the madness. Did it, did it come naturally to you, goal scoring? Was it an instinct or did you have to work at it day in, day out? I worked at it day in, day out from very early age. I was kind of very lucky. I was picked up by Leicester when I was about 12. And I used to go to train with them on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays after school. And they had a coach who he's no longer with, there's a guy called George Jewis, who was a goal scorer himself and played for Leicester way back when. 
his training, we used to train for about two hours and it was entirely finishing. He wouldn't have been much use for midfield players or defenders, but for goalkeepers and strikers, he was great. And he was an integral part of my development. We did, we did all sorts of goal scoring and it was every day of just finishing. Um, that's why I used to get so miffed with training. People used to say I was a bad trainer, um, but I wasn't. What I was was a trainer that didn't like bad training. So I was so used to finishing, and that's all I ever wanted to do in training, that latterly with other managers, that, that didn't happen. All of a sudden, we were doing teamwork and this and defensive work, and I was just bored out of my brains, and I was thinking, I'm getting nothing out of this. Um, and then I'd switch off a little bit. So that's kind of where I got that reputation from. Um, I didn't mind hard training. I thought it was good for me. I didn't. I love finishing, um, but all the other stuff has bored me senseless. So... But I think there's a degree of intuition uh, in, in goal scoring, but it, it's really mostly common sense. Goal scoring is about gambling on areas where you think the ball will go. Um, most of the time it won't go there. But if you gamble on a space where you think the cross might come or the through ball might come and you attack that space hoping the ball goes there, 19 times out of 20, it probably won't go where you think it might go or hope it might go. It'll go somewhere else. But on the 20th occasion, that ball goes exactly where you think it will go. And you've made that run, which obviously the defender is behind you. Then, then you've got an easy chance to score. And the constant thing you used to, I used to read in the papers or hear fans say, oh, that Lineker, he did nothing all game. And then, then he was there and then he had an easy tap in at the end. He was in the right place at the right time. What they miss, of course, is the, the 90 runs you've made in the game where the ball didn't go where you wanted it to go. And they only see that one moment. Nice little touch from Gascoigne. Alan was onside, plenty forward. Mavet trying to get there. Smith, it's gone in. Lineker got the final touch. So I've heard lots of goal scorers say they don't know how they score goals and they, they kind of did it intuitively. But... I kind of always worked it out how it was. You know, you make one little run away and then you charge at a space. Obviously, you've got to time it perfectly not to be offside on certain occasions. Um, whereas most strikers, and still to this day, it bemuses me, I watch them and they wait till the guy starts to cross it because they're waiting to see where it goes. And therefore, that's what the defenders do. So you end up challenging some six-foot, five big husky bloke in the air and you've got no chance I scored you know massive amount of headers I think I've scored more headers for England than anyone else I'm not very big um, but it's about getting in the space it still surprises me that um, so few do it so it's it's partly intuitive but it's not really it's like anyone has a, has a shot at goal as soon as they shoot you charge at the goalkeeper in case he fumbles it um, it's amazing how many still don't do that I mean that's a basic absolute basic for a golf scorer um, you played with some great partners, didn't you? Smudger, yep. Alan Smith at, yep. at Leicester, on to Everton, Sharpie, Heath, yep. Barcelona, a little bit different. You clicked with Beardsley at England. Did you like having a partner or, or, or did you prefer playing on your own or, or wide as you did a bit for Barca? <laughs> I didn't mind either way. Um, it depended on the style of football. Obviously, in the mid-80s, early 80s, mid-80s, the football was fairly direct. You know, you used to be a target man, hold it up, he flicked one on for you and stuff like that. It was fine. I actually enjoy playing up front on my own. It gives you a little bit more responsibility in many ways. You've got to kind of, ball's got to come and you've got to stick and hold it up. And um, 
And that wasn't easy in my day because the pitches were so bad. You know, people forget mm. nowadays it's a piece of cake. It's like you're playing on billiard tables. But, you know, in the thick mud and stuff, that wasn't easy. And you got everyone shouting from touchline, your managers, hold it up, hold it up. You know, yeah, you try holding it up on this muddy. <laughs> and um, so, you know, the game's changed. But I, I, I didn't mind anyway. You know, I used to love my conversations with Terry Venables. We spent a lot of time when he was, it, it was a very unique situation because he was at Barcelona. Spent a lot of time having lunches and stuff, which you'd never normally do with a coach. But I guess because we were Brits abroad, we kind of stuck together a little bit. And, you know, we, we just went into the game and discussed how, you know, playing up front on your own, playing with two, playing in different ways, what you do in this situation. He constantly kind of threw in ideas about um, what would you do in that position. Maybe if you tried tuck, when the ball's on the right, if you went, give a little run to the left, then spun out right to the far post, that might work. And sometimes I'd go, well, that's, that's, I'm not sure about that. And then other occasions, maybe it's worth a try. So I was always into the like tactical side of the game, but I never really had a particular preference on whether I played one up on, well, on my own, someone just off me or just two basically up front it depended on who you were playing with and the style of football that the team played you obviously started at Leicester you're in the second division scored a lot of goals went into the first division scored 22 goals in 39 appearances in the league in your first season there 83 84 24 in 41 the subsequent season and got a move to Everton and I think you scored in your third or fourth game at Everton a hat-trick at home to Birmingham before the end of August did you then know that it was going to click straight away as soon as you signed as soon as you you got those goals well all goal scores need to get going um I yeah obviously I did quite a tough start I mean I didn't realize when I went I mean I knew Andy Gray was a real hero amongst the Everton fans but I didn't quite understand the situation they were really unhappy that he left and um, I was taking his place obviously so I, I remember the first game at home and they read out the team numbers and they went yeah number blah 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 number Sir Peter Reeb, old Bracewell, uh, number eight, uh, number seven Trevor Stephen, number and they're all cheering 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 they got to number, number eight uh, Gary Lineker and there was like a few cheers but a lot of boos <laughs> Um, and I honestly, honestly, and I thought, oh, what? Oh, and, and I didn't quite understand. And then I, first three games, I didn't score. I was getting dogs abuse in the um, in the Liverpool Echo from supporters' letters and and all sorts. And um, I was starting to think, oh, Christ, you better start scoring. And then we played Spurs away, and they went down. I think it was Trevor Stephen went down the right, crossed a great ball, and I scored a diving header. Mm. As you say, then I scored a hat trick against Birmingham. Then I got two against someone else. And from having no goals in three games, I had six in six and I was top scorer in the league. And the letters started getting, um, <laughs> there were fewer letters going to the, <laughs> the Liverpool Echo. But it took me a long time to win them over. I mean, I, I understand why, but I think Christmas, the new year, I think we played Blackburn and Man United and I scored a couple in one and one in another. I think they were both at home. And, and all of a sudden they, they started really singing my name and it was... It was um, a totally different feel. Well, you were only there for one season, weren't you? But you scored 40 goals in 57 games. I think you've said before that it's the best club side you ever played in. Oh, unquestionably, yeah. Why was they that? Were, because it was, the, it was the best team. 
you know, I played, obviously I played Leicester, who were, they weren't miracle makers back then. You know, I was only one season at Everton. Then I went through, you'd think perhaps Barcelona would be the best team, but it was very much a side in transition. They'd lost a couple of huge players through injury. A couple of other players were getting a little bit old. It was a decent team, but it wasn't anywhere near as good as Everton. And then I came back to Tottenham and we were kind of a couple of players short of being um, as, as good as Everton. Um, we lost, obviously, I signed. One of the reasons I signed was Chris Waddle was there. And then within a month, he was sold to Marseille. And, and Tottenham then made it very clear that they had financial problems. So um, they were always a few players short of, of being a great side, who good side. So Everton were comfortably the best club side I, I played for. That team that I played in, was, it's one of those sides that, which is quite difficult normally. Is just You know it. I could name it now, I think. Um, Southall, Gary Stevens, um, Derek Mountfield, Kevin Ratcliffe, Pat Vandenhal, Trevor Stephen, Paul Bracewell, Peter Reid, Kevin Sheedy, Graham Sharp and me, with people like Adrian Heath and um, one or two others coming in um, on occasions. So uh, it was such a good side to play in mm. and created so many... Um, opportunities and and the sad thing was I I never they'd won the league the previous year and obviously that was high so and um, then we couldn't play in the European Cup and I think we would have won the European Cup I honestly genuinely believe Everton should have one of those coming up next on Upfront with Gary Lineker when you came home it was like what the hell is going on you know everywhere I went it was like what is going on I was mobbed. Life had never been like that before. You're listening to Upfront with Gary Lineker and me, Sam Matterface, on TalkSport. Hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to work in the channelized Bimbingus of the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of the TalkSport Daily is brought to you by Enterprise Rent a Car. Planning to hire or share a car or van? Enterprise is there every step of the way. Whenever and wherever you need a vehicle and whatever it's for, Enterprise can help. With over 450 locations across the UK, they're just around the corner. Whether you need a weekend rental, a holiday hire, a replacement car, or you're planning a business trip, home or away, Enterprise are there to help. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Beardsley and Lineker, who linked up so well together in Tbilisi. Sharp then. The third player involved is Trevor Steven, and it's Gary Stevens. Lineker! The World Cup campaign at last is on the move. Got 
got your England debut when you were at Leicester, but it was that summer post those 40 goals with Everton that it really kicked on and changed, as you said. That World Cup of 1986 in Mexico, the second quickest World Cup hat-trick, the golden boot, the famous hand of God moment. Did you go there confident that you were going to make a splash on the world stage? I wouldn't say I was confident I was going to make a splash. I mean, I've said this many times. Um, I I didn't realise that I was that good. I always question my own ability. I always thought that every time I found a different level it would it would find me out but it it didn't seem to matter whenever I whatever I played whatever level it was whether it was moving up from the youth team to the reserves the reserves to the first team I remember sitting in the dressing room looking around thinking my god I'm playing with some of my heroes here what am I doing here this will find me out and it was the same when I got in the England squad you know I remember driving up to I think it was Wrexham and we were playing Wales the next day. I didn't get on, but I was first time in the squad. And I was thinking, God, my dude's hero. Like said, Peter Shilton's over there. Peter Shilton, my hero from a kid who I ended up rooming with for eight years. So not, not necessarily confident, but definitely ambitious and had a great desire to be successful. I think the only bloke that really thought I'd, um, possibly apart from Bobby Robson, the only bloke that really had that much faith in me was my dad in that World Cup. He, I think he's probably the only person on the planet to back me to be top scorer he was a gambler and he I think he put a few quid on me at about 16 to 1 because <laughs> there was a there was a sort of case that you might not have been in the team for that Poland game because things Absolutely. hadn't gone particularly well I honestly thought I'd be left out um, the first two games didn't go well I was a bit unlucky in the second game I picked, well not one past the goalkeeper perfectly and and one of the defenders ran around and cleared it off the line um, I hadn't scored, I think, in the, and I obviously have the arm problem as well. I kind of did my wrist in in the game against Canada, so I was struggling a little bit. It was hurting me, even running. And then I didn't score in the first two games. I honestly thought I'd be left out, but Bobby stuck with me. And he, and for the first time ever with England, they didn't go with a kind of big guy, little guy up front because I was playing with Mark Hately. Um, he could easily have left me out, but he left Mark out instead. And obviously, the the, the rest for me is history, and I managed to score the hat-trick. Winocic loses it and Lineker says thank you very much, collects his hat-trick and there is an element of delirium on the terraces. So Lineker gets the hat-trick. For the record, it's the 41st hat-trick scored in World Cup final. Barcelona came calling after that World Cup. Terry Venables came calling. What were the differences between being a forward in Spain and in Catalonia compared with the old first division? Different styles of play. I talked about earlier about the um, defensive styles of teams. A lot of teams played very deep against Barcelona, a little bit like you see teams now with um, playing very deep defensive blocks. Um, whereas no one played like that back then in the 80s. It was all, everyone played the same way. Everyone played 4 4 2, um, up and at them, end to end stuff. And this was different. So th- those. Predominantly were the, the, the kind of main contrasts in styles. Um, the fact that a lot of teams would come to the new Camp or even when they're at home and just sit very deep or play like a sweeper. And it, it was, you know, it kind of stopped any chance of spinning behind defenders. So most of my goals in, in Spain came from, from crosses and um, getting in front of people, a lot of headers. You thrived there and they took to you. Mark Hughes transferred to Barcelona at the same time as you didn't. Why do you think that was? I think he's very young, Mark. 
he was I was 25 when I joined. He was I think 21. I was I think at an age um, where I just got married, just quite settled. Um, Mark had a girlfriend, Jill, who he's, he's still married to now to this day. And I think I was just a little bit more mature. I don't think I would have handled it very well if I'd have been 21. And we went out. I also had a very good start. I scored two goals in the first 20 minutes of my debut at home. Mark didn't. Mark's style of play there with the referees, because he, he liked backing into people. And every time he did that, they blew a free kick against him. Again, having a little bit more maturity. Saw it as an opportunity to learn the language and went to school three times a week. Mark came for the first week or two um, with me and, um, and my first wife, Michelle. And he bailed out after about a week or two weeks. So I just don't think he was quite ready for it, really. And then the crowd got on his back and, and he had a hard time. And um, it, was, it was tough for him and I felt for him. But I just think if he'd have been there four or five years later, or if he'd have been my age, as he showed it, he did pretty well at Bayern Munich, that he would um, have, have done much better, I think. The strikers are kingpins. They're the man or the woman who takes the adulation when the ball hits the net, wheeling away in celebration, taking the applause after scoring the important mm. goal. They, they're the ones that get the headlines. Their image is always plastered on the back pages, sometimes front pages. How did you cope with the attention? Oh, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's that we are the glory seekers and the glory hunters and the glory boys. Um, but we're also, you know, we if, if we if we fail, if we miss, we're the ones that get um, the abuse. Us and goalkeepers, I think, are the most highly pressured uh, positions on the football pitch. It's the only thing I miss from football is the feeling of scoring a goal. Everything else you can kind of replicate to a degree in what I do now. We have like camaraderie, but that feeling, I've had conversations with um, Shearer and Michael Owen about, about this and there's nothing, there's nothing in life even closely compares, I don't think, to, to the, the feeling of scoring a goal in an important game and a winning goal. Bobby Robson turns away to go back to the bench and looks back again over his shoulder. And staring and shouting as in comes Lineker and scores! England lead by three to two. Two goals for Gary Lineker from the penalty spot. 1990 is the World Cup that spawned so much love for the game in this country. Gaza, your little look, the <laughs> goals against Cameroon, Platt against Belgium in the last minute of extra time, Sir Bobby and his character. Were you aware? of how big it got over here when you were in camp, when you were in, I think you were in Sardinia, weren't you, at one stage yeah. early in the in the tournament. Were you aware of, of what was going on back here? No, um, not at all, really. Slightly more so than perhaps 86, because 86, I mean, that was really remote. You know, there was, I remember we were in the training camp there and the hotel, and we were only allowed one phone call home a week, and it was from reception, um, <laughs> there was no obviously mobile phones, no social media, no thankfully, thankfully. Um, and 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 then when we came home from Mexico, it was you know having obviously one done reasonably well, and apart from you know them being kind of half cheated. Um, and when you came home, it was like, oh my god, oh my, what is what the hell is going on? You know, all of a sudden from being kind of recognised a little bit. You know, certainly in my hometown, Leicester, and, and now obviously in Merseyside and a few places elsewhere, 
everywhere I went, it was like, what is going on? Now I remember, I remember driving up back up to um, to Merseyside and stopped for petrol, and I was mobbed. And it was like life had never been like that before. Um, so I had a kind of inkling that it would be a bit like that with uh, Metallia '90, but it was like on another level. semi-final started brilliantly they got control midway through the first half scored first you equalized did you believe at that moment it was going to be our night I always believe that in every game I ever played um, to be perfectly honest but I thought we played great in that game I, I funny I watched it for the first time in its entirety a couple of years ago and um, we were good and we were the better side um, I hadn't you don't really feel like that when you play and you're just concentrating on what you're doing but I, I felt I even the penalty shootout I felt we'd win it I don't know why but I was yeah I thought we played great um I, I, obviously the luck didn't go with us in that one I think didn't genuinely so I mean they're absolute fluke of a goal that they scored you know we were the better side early on comfortably and then second half they scored a goal and we showed great character to come back from that I mean it was absolute fluke when it hit Paul Parker and went right in the air and then I, obviously I equalised, which was the most exhilarating explosion of joy that was imaginable. And then genuinely we thought we'd gone to win it. And then obviously Chrissy Waddle at the inside of the post. And we, it just didn't happen for us. Oh, Waddle. Can he square it for Lineker? Waddle shoots. Oh, and the rebound off the post. Just beat David Platt. And then you had Gaz's booking and all that. Uh, did did well, that sort of suck exactly. the emotion out of it, do you think? No, I don't think so. No, no, not at all. It wasn't um, distracting. Obviously. It was distracting for a moment, but you're playing a World Cup semi-final. You want to get to the World Cup. I know it sounds selfish, but and 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 one of the reasons I did the little thing to obviously Bobby Robson because because Gaz's bottom lip was going. Mm. Now I had no idea that cameras were on me, and it and it would be kind of caught as this iconic Italian IT moment, none whatsoever. I was genuinely going have a word with him, keep an eye on him because if he loses it, we might get beat here, and that's what it was about. Gascoigne again. He won't be shaken off. And in the end, the German bench get up and protest at Gascoigne's last challenge. He has actually, Gascoigne, got a yellow card. And I'm, oh dear. Oh dear me. He's going to be out of the final if England get there. But Gazza pulled himself together and he, he, he was terrific in, in extra time. And uh, it was a selfless performance. So. But yeah, when you're engrossed in a game, you know, you, all these things, you, you, you never actually sit there at one moment and think to yourself, I think we're going to win this or I think we're going to lose this. It's not how it works. You're just kind of constantly focusing on what you're trying to do. What hurt more, the penalty shootout defeat to Germany or the defeat to Argentina with Maradona's hand? 
um, kind of different experiences. Um, I, I, the one that really hurt more was 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 Germany penalty shootout because it's a semi final, not a quarter final. We were a better team than ninety in than we were in eighty six. Argentina were probably marginally better side than us, and they had Maradona. Um, but I think losing the penalty shootout like that, uh, having played so well and being so close to a World Cup final, where I think we'd we'd have been good favourites. Um, given that he yeah, had a few injury problems and Diego was past his best by that stage. So, I, I, you know, it just felt to me it's the only thing I look... I don't look back on 86 and think if only, but I do look back on 1990 and think if only we'd have won that penalty shootout. Or if, if Chris Waddle's shot had been quarter of an inch further left, it would have gone in off the post in extra time. And, that, that, that's, and, and I know Bobby Robson's the same. I had the conversation with him. I did a doc with him. Um, in his in the last couple of years of his life, and, and he had the same. It's, I don't think regrets the fight, right word. I think it's the same disappointment, the same if only feeling, and that's the only thing from my whole career really. Did you ever forgive Graham Taylor for taking you off in Sweden? Alan Smith, is called for by England, and Gary Lineker is coming off. This is a sensation. Is Lineker leaving international football in about yeah in about half an hour? Because I'm not a, I'm, I'm I'm a very forgiving person, and it was a decision I'm sure he made for for what he felt were the right reasons. I sensed it was coming as well. Um, you know, I hadn't scored for a bit, but it, it was a poor England side. Um, it was the weakest England side that I certainly played in. We didn't create very much. So the chance, but and funnily enough, in with hindsight, I actually think Graham Taylor kind of made a martyr out of me. Um, he brought me off. I don't know, it was about half an hour to go, and I, I I always felt that I would score a goal in any game that I played, and I'd feel the same in that. But the chances are I probably wouldn't, and if I hadn't have scored a goal, I would have been slaughtered along with the rest of the team. But because he took me off, it deflected from all my other performances. Um, I'm not saying he did me a favour because, I, as I say, I genuinely think I might have scored. But if I hadn't, um, he actually protected me from the stick that perhaps everybody else um, got. And I, I, I've met Graham loads of times since and we've always gotten absolutely fine. You know, he was, he, he was a good guy. I think he was a little bit out of his depth with the England job in terms of, of the tactical aspects of football. Um, I think he'd have actually been better because we all know that Graham, you know, is like he was a, a long ball man, direct football, and I think he tried to compromise a little bit with the international setup. I think actually he would have been better off just playing exactly the same way he had done it when he was in charge of Lincoln and then he was in charge of Watford, and um, I think he he probably would have been better off um, playing the way that he knew how to play. Forty-eight goals in eighty caps, as you said, amazing. Captaining the country, a great achievement. How difficult was it to captain the country and be the main goal threat at the same time? Because often, and I know you're a big cricket fan, in cricket we say if, if it's the opening batsman becomes the, 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 the test captain for England, it takes something away from his batting. Did that ever apply to, to your scenario? Um, no, not really. I don't, I, I don't think you can compare captaincy in football and cricket, really, because in cricket they have to make loads of decisions. You know, they they they, put, they do the field placings. They decide who's bowling. They do you know all sorts. They even have a, a say in the selection of the side. 
the captaincy in football, we get a bit worked up about it in this country. In other countries, they don't. It's, it, it's obviously a significance. But the players vote who's captain. And players always behave exactly the same way on the field, whether they're captain or not. It's obviously a, a big achievement. And it's a very proud moment when you get it. But the job is really an off-field role because you have no say over tactics. None you don't have any say over substitutions. It's all the manager. It's, a different, it's different to cricket. And we get a bit hung up on who's captain and whether it... It doesn't make any difference through any result in the history of any game ever, I don't think. But it is a very important role off the field. Um, and I enjoyed it. I love being captain. I love the off-field role because you're a link man between the manager and the players and you're a link between the players and the press and the media. And that's an important aspect, particularly nowadays. You know, that whoever the manager is, when they do decide who the, the captain is going to be, they have to think about how they how these guys will handle the media. Harry Kane is the current England captain and he does it particularly well. doesn't make any difference to Harry Kane's performances on the pitch. OK, before I let you go, I need to uh, do a quick quiz with you, which we've done with a few of the forwards that have taken part oh. in this. It's we call it <laughs> the perfect hat trick. It's how well you know yourself. Oh, God, my memory's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> well, it's been good so far. Question number one, then. You scored a hat trick in the 1986 World Cup against Poland. Who provided the assist for the first goal? Gary Stevens. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you who the goalkeeper was. Any idea? No, no idea. <laughs> Joseph I love him, he, dropped one of, he dropped the third one right onto me. Yeah, he Let did. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Joseph Mlinicek. Well, it wouldn't be nice to say it anyway. <laughs> hey, the second goal was great, though, wasn't it? What a great goal that was. Oh, great move, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. It was a difficult finish as well because it was like just short of a half volley. I had to try and take the weight off it to keep it down. Um, you were the highest scoring British player in La Liga history until who came along? Oh, blimey. Um, um, Gareth Bale. Yeah. Do you know when it was? Not long ago. A couple of years ago. March ago. 2016, yeah. Yeah, oh, it was long ago. Yeah, four years ago, yeah. Uh, and finally, in what stadium was the last of your 48 England goals? Oh, it was in, um, it was in Moscow. Yeah. Do you want the name of the stadium? You know it. It was one. It was where they had the World Cup final, was it? It was, yeah. The Luzhniki yeah. Stadium. Luzhniki, yeah, that's yeah. I couldn't remember the name, but yeah. Indeed. I do, it was a header as well. Yeah. I never thought it'd be my last one at the time. <laughs> 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 that's the thing. That's what makes goal scoring so special, though. That feeling when you score, and the reason it's so special is that you never know when you're going to score another one. And I didn't score another one, not for England, anyway. You've been listening to Upfront with Gary Lineker and me, Sam Matterface. If you've missed any of the show or you want to catch up, you can download the podcast from the Talksport Game Day feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever your mission, home or away, don't delay. Enterprise has the vehicle for the job. Rent from the best lineup in the UK. With over 450 branches, Enterprise has what your business needs. From compact three-door cars to spacious SUVs and people carriers to vans, they offer a large range of reliable vehicles perfect for the job. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.